Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, the manager of Midwest Mischief, welcoming you to another episode of Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice surfing on the beaches of Santa Cruz, California, and let a five-year-old outlaw otter flip it into the ocean. On today's episode, I chat with a West Coast content creator who had the incredible task of illustrating a Google Doodle commemorating the life and work of Native American and lesbian photographer, writer, and poet Barbara May Cameron. Barbara is a powerhouse among queer icons, though that may not be as apparent given the lacking regard for her work in mainstream media and discussions of queer history. She was born in Fort Yakes, North Dakota, and raised by her grandparents on the Standing Rock Reservation. Her writing and activism work is deeply connected to her experiences witnessing racialized violence, growing up and coming into understandings of her indigeneity and queerness throughout the 1960s and 70s. In her contribution to This Bridge Called My Back, writings from radical women of color, Barbara writes in an essay titled, Gee, You Don't Seem Like an Indian from the Reservation. She writes, Because of experiencing racial violence, I sometimes panic when I'm the only non-white in a room full of whites, even if they are my closest friends. The seemingly copacetic gay world of San Francisco becomes a mere dream after the panic leaves. She goes on to talk about her differing experiences of assimilation and alienation in majority white spaces, although she doesn't really like the words because I generally mistrust words that are used to define Native Americans and brown people. I don't like being put under a magnifying glass and having cute liberal terms describe who I am. She shares a dream she had where a horse represents the white world she navigates and the eagle represents the Indian world. And from this dream, she realized she knew as much about the white world as she needed, that she wasn't interested in assimilation, that she's not interested in pursuing a society with arrogance rising, moon in oppression, and sun in destruction. At the time of writing this essay in 1981, Barbara was in her mid-twenties, already living in San Francisco, where her knowledge of coexisting with white folks had greatly expanded, and her understanding of the racism inherent in white gay communities had deepened. Based on this realization, her work in advocating for LGBTQ natives also expanded as she settled into and got connected to other indigenous folks in the Bay Area, ultimately leading to her co-founding Gay American Indians in 1975 with fellow activist Randy Burns. Over the few decades she lived in California, Barbara got deeply involved in progressive political causes, HIV-AIDS activism, solidarity efforts among various racialized groups, and writing about her community-based experiences. In the epilogue of, gee, you don't seem like an Indian from the reservation, Barbara reminisces on visiting her home in South Dakota. It was my first time in eight years, she says. I kept putting off my visit because I could not tolerate the white people there and the ruralness and poverty of the reservation. And because in the eight years since I left home, I came out as lesbian. My visit home was overwhelming. Floods and floods of locked memories broke. I rediscovered myself there in the hills, on the prairies, in the sky, on the road, in the quiet nights, among the stars, listening to the distant yelps of coyotes, walking on Lakota earth, seeing Bear Butte, looking at my grandparents' cragged faces, standing under Wakenyan, 
smelling the black hills, and being with my precious circle of relatives. My sense of time changed, my manner of speaking changed, and a certain freedom with myself returned. I was sad to leave, but recognized that a significant part of myself has never left and never will, and that part is what gives me strength, the strength of my people's enduring history and continuing belief in the sovereignty of our lives. Barbara May Cameron passed away in 2002 at the age of 47 and is survived by her long-term partner Linda and son Reese. The Google Doodle commemorating her life's work was published on May 22, 2023 on what would have been her 69th birthday. Today's guest, queer Mexican and Chittimachan artist, Sienna Gonzalez, also known as Somewhere in June across social media, is the artist behind this Google Doodle design. We chat about the stepping stones into her artistic and queer identities, the bumpy road to a BFA from UCLA, and the rewarding and lightning process of illustrating a virtual homage to Barbara May Cameron. Flip to a clean sketchpad page and pull out your number two pencil for this episode of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely gonna talk about Midwest nice. And if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, friend. I'm super excited for this conversation. Really glad we were able to carve some time. Really happy to meet you um, through this and talk about some of the cool stuff you do and uh, a particular project that we'll get into shortly. But can we... Um, start off just telling a bit about who you are, um, what you're up to, uh, and if you could include any like connections or like perspectives you have on the Midwest, um, even if you don't have a relationship to the Midwest, which we'll get into too. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I'll start with the first part, which is like who I am as mm -hmm. an artist. So I like to describe myself as an illustrator with a fine art background. Wow. Um, I received my formal education from UCLA. So you know, I feel like I'm pretty well versed in sculpture, classic painting, all of the traditional mediums. However, my love for storytelling and narrative drawing has won out over like abstract paintings and such. So I, yeah, I like to think of myself who's very like story oriented, very focused on specifically sharing my own experiences, but also creating a space where other folks can feel represented. Uh, specifically other queer people of color. Um, I, I will probably get into UCLA later, um, but I did, just to keep it brief for now, like I did find higher education to be very alienating. Sure. And I find it really important to keep my art accessible, not only in the way that I share it, which is online, um, but the subject matters, the way that I portray things. Like I... I don't necessarily stray from like heavy subject matters, but I want people to be able to engage with things the way they might like uh, an illustrated book. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would say that I'm I'm really focused on representation as an artist. I'm really focused on 
parsing through my own like internal spaces through my art and social media has become a really important uh, tool for me sharing my work and connecting to folks and that kind of leads into the answer to your question about the midwest yes um I am born and raised in California, so I don't have personal roots in the Midwest, but a lot of my followers um, are from the Midwest, Mm -hmm. and specifically, um, my audience is majority queer folks. So oftentimes, I'll get comments and messages from people telling me how um, like rejuvenating and refreshing it is to see this work, especially um, in spaces where that might not be as common as it is here in California. Love that. Love that. And we'll get into why someone who doesn't have a deep uh, and immediate connection with the Midwest is chatting on this space today. But I, I like that you kind of have this like audience and this like general awareness. You were saying your analytics give you give you some updates yeah. that like Midwest is pretty thrush in your um, follower uh, pool. Um, let, is there... Is there a moment you think um, either coming into your own queerness or just like in general, like younger you, um, that there was kind of this aha moment of like realizing you were well equipped to be the storyteller and like a particular medium you maybe gravitated towards to kind of start this journey that you're now very deeply involved in? Yeah, that's so funny. I would actually say that my... Well, my introduction to queerness, I feel, came later in life just because of, you know, circumstances like living under my parents' roof. I didn't have Mm -hmm. as much freedom to express myself. Um, But in terms of figuring out how much I wanted to be a storyteller, it it started with like fan fiction and fan art. (laughs) And that was like my little online queer space that I had as a high schooler, even before I was out. And... I just remember the feeling of, you know, loving this piece of media, but then going online and seeing this community of writers and artists who are making free content, labors of love, and just generously sharing it with each other. And it was so exciting. And I wanted to pitch in. I wanted to be part of that. It felt like it felt like an exchange. And so that feeling started with fan art, fan fiction. And then as I developed my own artistic voice, I realized that there were people out there who felt that excited about my own original work. Mm -hmm. And it kind of put me in conversation with people, created a connection that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. That's amazing. I I would say that like I didn't I have not and did not get super like immersed in like fanfic fan art per se um but i do appreciate a good especially circa today like i love a good stranger things like can <laughs> shipping like everybody's queer quite lately like oh yeah that's real um <laughs> my there, yeah. there, that's a podcast in the future definitely talking about like, stranger <laughs> things as a midwest coming out story that's on the that's on the wish list um did you have a particular like me uh uh like show or like characters that you were really <laughs> you were really into yeah making art around yeah yeah, it's like so it's a little like funny thinking about it now because I'm so big on like representation, but like Sherlock, BBC Sherlock, okay. that was like my <laughs> whole life. These like two middle-aged white men. <laughs> I just remember my mom would watch me like rewatch these episodes every single week and she'd be like, "What do you see here?" Be like, "Mom, John Luck is real. Like I need to like, stack evidence." So like, it was almost it was super interesting because I feel like 
specifically being involved in fandoms that were like MLM, like men loving men, it was like a way for me to engage with queerness without having to think about the fact that I was lesbian. And it like gave me a way to be part of those spaces and not have to think about my own feelings towards like women and just completely shift the focus elsewhere. And I've heard this experience from a lot of other friends of mine who came out as lesbians later in life that it was almost like looking at the thing too head on to like engage with lesbian media. Got it. Um, And so, yeah, it was just, it was a creative outlet. It was a way to express myself and it was, it was like a safe space online. Love that. I love that. We have a workshop um, at our conference that's in November. We've just finished our review process and there's one that like isn't explicitly about fan art, I don't think, but it um, connects it in a way where it's focusing on like smut um, and talking yeah. about like these kind of, it's, they're going to bring in these artifacts essentially of I think comic books is their primary medium focus in this session, but kind of connecting to how what I would say is like the early maybe precursor to what has now become our understandings of fan art and fanfic and so pretty excited about that session to be part of it so that sounds awesome yeah Yeah. like all these connections and conversations around how we inherently in some ways because of a lack of representation we just we hightail it and turn it into something else and say well it's ours now (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely love that um you said that ucla was a place um and as someone who who has a background in higher education, my day job, my master's mm-hmm. degree, right? That is not a surprise to me. Um, and also, right, as a homegirl from the Midwest, born and raised, um, we, you know, something that may or may not be privy, you may not may not be privy to as a Californian, but there's this huge pressure to, like, move to the coasts, whether it's, like, the Northeast, mm-hmm. right, or whether it's California, um, sometimes DC, right? Just kind of this presumption that leaving the Midwest, which has a lot of um, things projected onto it, especially in like high political times, right? Um, yeah. That there's this pressure for folks to either move to giant cities within our region or to leave it entirely. Um, yeah. And so when I think about, you know, this glorification of places outside the region, especially working with young folks like I do, you know, it's always really, it's bittersweet, but it's helpful to know that like there's just as much complexity and frustration and battles going on in some of these glorified places that are generally ahead of the game in many places, but still encounter a lot of the same issues. So really curious, like if you want to dig a little deeper into kind of the alienation experience of UCLA um, at all as an artist, as a queer person, as a queer person of color, like any and all of those pieces because it's unfortunately not surprising to me but might be interesting for folks who are like oh california is where it's at it's like yes and (laughs) yes and that's Mm -hmm. a really yeah that's a really great point i'm glad you brought that up because i do think that california has a reputation of just being like completely safe for queer people of color people of color in general and I, I think it just looks different here. I think um, like the types of violence and macro microaggressions that happen, they just there's like a thin like veneer of like, I know it's not correct for me to say this, so I'll insinuate it. Um, and I feel like that was a lot of my experience in art school. Um, for one, I was in a program that was majority white and I had gone to a high school with a similar demographic. Um but I think just being in higher education, the pressure of UCLA, 
the speed, um, just kind of being thrown into a school where I had no experience being on my own. I was in a new city because I grew up in the Bay Area. It was very alienating just in itself. Um, but I felt throughout my time there that my uh, professors just weren't good mediators in mm. these like conversations. Like people would make art that was appropriative of other cultures, mm. that was inappropriate and not their story to tell. And I just feel like my professors did not have the training or the tools to handle that, to call people in, to educate. Mm-hmm. And so at, when I was there, every single piece of art that I made was about racism. It was about calling out the things that I was seeing because I felt like no one else was doing anything about it. And, you know, I had an instance, which actually this is one of the first videos I made on TikTok that like went viral. Mm-hmm. It was me sharing the story of making this giant drawing that was a compilation of sketches specifically about my experience as a woman of color. It was like scraps of writing. It was doodles during class, all to make this big collage about my experience. And I remember after class, I was confronted by one of my white peers who was also much older than me. And she was furious. She was upset that it felt like white people had been excluded from the project. She felt like I was making a pointed statement. She went on a rant about, you know, not like she didn't choose to be white and people of color so angry. Like it was terrible. It was about an hour of her just ranting. And it I remember just like as we were in this like heated conversation, my professor, my white peers just kind of trickling in, sitting down, listening, but not engaging not standing up for me at all and it was the worst the it ended in the worst way possible because by the end of the conversation she kind of realized what she was saying and said she felt bad and wanted a hug and i gave her a hug it was horrible <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and it was yeah Did like that it's just yeah oh. yeah <laughs> absolutely Yeah, it was just so bizarre. It was so bizarre. And I just feel like that moment just kind of sums up the experience that I had there where I was constantly educating others at my own expense, Mm -hmm. making work that was draining me, literally Mm -hmm. pouring my like blood into these projects Mm -hmm. that weren't giving me anything back. Um, And then the other layer to it is that I'm an illustrator and this was a fine art program. And I was constantly told that my work wasn't deep enough. It wasn't abstract enough. It was too specific, too identity-based. And in the fine art world, that is kind of like a bad word. Like making identity art is seen as lesser, kind of cheap and surface level. And frankly, I think it's because it's more accessible to people. I think a lot of in the fine art world, there's this idea that art should be removed from politics, that it should it's above it, essentially. And that's just not possible for someone whose politics affect their day to day. Like I am politicized whether I want to be or not. And to be around peers and professors who were constantly telling me to scrub my work clean of that Mm -hmm. and make something universal it felt like I was, as a person, being erased. 
Um, and so it was very, very difficult four years. That's so frustrating. And then to, I mean, would you say, or do you feel like your experience was kind of co-opted because you were then in a place where you were reacting to your environment versus being able to show up kind of on a similar playing field as your peers, especially your white cishet peers, probably, um, to extract as much from your education that you paid for as everyone else? Right. I definitely don't feel like I got my money's worth because it was like survival mode, like constantly. Mm -hmm. And I, I also just remember like even in high school when I got into UCLA, a lot of classmates straight up told me you only got in because you're Native American. You're lucky, which is insane because I'm not even like legally registered with my tribe. Like I there's paperwork involved. There's all kinds of things. And a lot of people also don't understand that being indigenous doesn't it's not a free, it's not a Disney fast pass like you, right. you literally it's a narrow group who even benefits from those things. Um, and so, yeah, like it was it was constantly like that at UCLA. There's a book I'm reminded of. I had to look it up to get the full title. It's called The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom by Rubensha uh, Rose Chavez. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. It came out within the past handful of years, and it, from the perspective, it talks about a variety of things. But one of the things that came to mind is thinking about these spaces on college campuses where there's peer review involved. So in this case, it's creative writing classroom. Um, and I resonated very, very significantly with this book. And in general, a lot of what you're saying about kind of your art class spaces, because um, I studied creative writing in um, yeah. undergrad also. And so I, you know was not at a level of conscious awareness of all of the dynamics at play when I was in undergrad, but hence mm -hmm. forth being much more engaged in social justice work, the type of organizing and event planning I'm involved in now, you know, can look back on that and say like, oh, this is, I didn't have words for this, right? But like, ultimately, there was things at play in these spaces that were inequitable. Um, and the book itself talks a lot about how you know, connecting with the students very early on in a process where there's going to be peer-to-peer -peer review to try to deconstruct a lot of the power dynamics in the space is vital because then you run into, otherwise you run into some of the scenarios that you've already displayed very clearly that are not unfortunately unique or specific um, to UCLA. It's pretty chronic across institutions of higher education where there's certain narratives and certain stories that are prioritized that are held in higher regard as others, right? And it really makes for a deflating and frustrating experience. I remember writing a piece for one of my fiction classes um, where there was a level of like covert queerness taking place in the story that served the story. And my cishet white man instructor, like in commenting on it was like, shouldn't we be at a place where queerness doesn't have to be like a surprise or like a secret? I was like, A, no, we're not. B, not in the case of these characters. I was like, I don't like, God. just can you read the story for what it is? You know, just like to your yeah. point of like, once you put certain identities into play, it politicizes the piece and then it becomes, for cishet white people especially, like just they can't connect to it. Therefore, it's not a valid or good piece of work quote unquote on the good piece so like heard <laughs> is the moral of that story and i think yeah like what you said about um like cishet white folks not being able to connect i think the fact that there are so many like 
queer and trans people of color who are able to connect to white straight men on television and like project their feelings onto that and understand and empathize like you don't need to share identities with characters to understand their motivations their backstories mm-hmm. and I, I the feedback that you received where your professor was almost like this is unnecessary why does it have to be here that's exactly what I mean when I say identity work like right. it's looked at as kind of a like almost tacky thing to state yeah. something yeah, it's it's very disheartening as a creative who can't mm-hmm. shed those identities to be right. more convenient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you either get pigeonholed by embracing wanting to tell the stories that aren't being told yeah. and written off as tacky, or mm-hmm. you get told to erase that or just that it's not necessary. You know, why do like I believe he thought that I was writing a trope and I'm like, no, I'm writing almost a re a, a literal scenario that has taken place in my life that you wouldn't be aware of. You wouldn't understand. So you know, and I think the thing too to like, you know, name this for myself and all other white people listening, like some shit just isn't for us. And like that needs to be yeah. out. Uh not everybody's there, unfortunately. So, you know, keep on trudging. But I, you know, since your time at UCLA, I don't know when you graduated, how long it's been since you've been able to step out of that space or left UCLA. Um, do you feel like let me reframe that. How do you feel like you've kind of shape shifted or kind of or the air felt a little freer since you had well, yeah, the shoulders. Yeah, when I said that, yes. Like, how has the vibe changed for you? You know, what has been yeah. your life, you know, your life force of your art, like, since stepping out of UCLA? How does that look like? I, so I actually finished my senior year during the beginning of COVID. Oofta. So, okay. yeah. So I, I went home for four days supposedly and then that became four months and then school ended so that was in a way it it gave me so much clarity on the Mm -hmm. work I wanted to make Mm -hmm. because for the first time in years I didn't have to go to crit every day I didn't have to sit there and get like torn apart by my peers I was on zoom but I was able to kind of tune out all the noise and just make Mm -hmm. the work that I wanted to And in that like three to four months that I was home, I made like 30 new drawings, like back to back to back, like an entirely new body of work. Mm -hmm. Um, I that's when my platform on TikTok started taking off because I was documenting the process of making that work. And I just felt clear headed like I didn't I I don't like to make work that depicts violence towards people of color or constantly talks about that. I, you know, there are definitely times where it's important, but I think for me, it doesn't like fill my cup to do that. It ends up being like triggering and draining, especially when I feel like I'm creating work for an audience outside of my community. And I think that was the biggest shift. After UCLA, I have just been making work for the people in my community, the people who find value in the work that I make. Mm -hmm. And that has let me embrace illustration, embrace identity-based work, really turn my like gaze inward and like make work about how I feel. Mm -hmm. Because during school, I mean, I don't know how I felt. I was floating Mm -hmm. through classes and I just remember the end of my first quarter there, I had a whole issue with my professor because she said that my work was too illustrative too decorative too simplistic um you need to abstract it 
So I did that and I got great feedback and crit. I took all of my paintings that I spent months on, dropped them in a dumpster and walked back to my dorm. (laughs) And I don't regret it because that wasn't my work. And I feel like after college, I am making work that is mine. Like I feel confident about that. I love that. I wish you would have like lit a match just for like dramatic, extra dramatic effect. But like right? I could have had some um, different consequences. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds like your TikTok community has become a pretty like, but you've brought it up a couple of times. So I'm curious, um, you know, has did that serve in any way kind of like a, a different type of crit space almost where like you were getting the type of affirmation that you weren't receiving in a in a generative way through your classes or through being at campus making the work you want to do like how is that kind of fed into feeling any sense of affirmation or like that you're headed in a more true to sienna direction um with your art has that served that type of purpose or kind of how is that fed into you know post ucla we'll say (laughs) yeah um i think interestingly enough i feel like the big uh, thing that I've gained from TikTok is just connecting to other queer people because the work that I make nowadays does explore that more mm-hmm. because I don't feel like I have to, like I said, make work educating white audiences about me as a person of color. Mm-hmm. That now feels like something that I don't need to, I don't need to explicitly go into if I don't want to. And now I have a lot of room to talk about my experience with queerness, my experience with trauma, with with joy. And what I've gotten from TikTok is just an audience of people who relate. And um, I did an interview with a different indigenous magazine a couple weeks ago, and they asked me, like, what, like, basically, why do I make art? And the answer that I gave is, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're just shouting these feelings into a void. And instead of it just like kind of echoing, you get a reply of like, me too. Like, I get that. And it's really like, it blows my mind every time that anyone says something really positive about my work or says, you know, thank you for drawing that. I didn't know how to explain it, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And you know, just having that community of people who really do just love my work, who don't mm-hmm. know me as a person in real life, but know me as like an artist and a creator. It's a really good feeling. And it's definitely helped me take more pride in what I'm doing and take myself more seriously. I love that. And wish that that was your experience in college because it should have been. And unfortunately, as we just discussed, like that's not that's not how it's formatted. That's not how it's set It's set up, which, you know, TikTok spaces and social media spaces tend to be these playgrounds where I think folks sidestep out of these more like mainstream or like institutionalized places where, you know, it's not about the enjoyment or the joy of creating or exploring, right? It's about checking a box, getting a grade, getting the feedback, feeling like you're somehow entitled to a certain level of feedback when you don't have the range to be yeah. on the type of feedback. I felt that in some of my classes. She was like, I, I, there's this little mantra, I forget where I picked it up, somewhere on social media, because I'm way too on the internet, that's like, <laughs> don't accept critique from folks you would not accept advice from. And so I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I've heard this one. you, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna take too, too much, you know, I'm happy to change a word or two, but... uh yeah, yeah, there's a reason my characters are covertly queer. Okay, thanks. 
Um, so let's let's go ahead and dig into this big this this big cool project you um, got to do. I'm really curious, and I like to know how things work because I've never um, known or like yeah. connected with anyone who's ever done one of these uh, pieces. But you had the pleasure and opportunity to do a Google Doodle. Um, so can we let's talk about how does one even get asked or invited to do a Google Doodle? How did the, how did you get invited to do this? Yeah. So it's funny because when I was in uh, high school, I did like the Google Doodle competitions like and didn't get chosen. But like that was like me trying it. That was the only way that I thought this kind of worked. But the art director actually just emailed me one day. Um, (laughs) She yeah, she emailed me and she I assume had seen my work from social media Mm -hmm. and felt like I would be a good fit. she also made it clear that they wanted to work with an indigenous artist on this piece, which I think was really important. Um, and yeah, my correspondence was basically with the art director and it was like round after round of revisions. I would say there's probably eight or nine different versions of the doodle that I like fully sketched out and then sent over before we landed on the final one. I, I value that process. That's something that um, my team and I've seen a lot of like more liberatory conscious spaces being very mindful of is like how much labor you're asking an artist to do before a selection process. So mm-hmm. like, you know, that sounds like a lot of work, obviously, of doing multiple mm-hmm. revisions, but ultimately not like you having to sketch eight proposals and then still potentially not yeah, get no. selected, right? Versus saying, we see your portfolio, we see your work. Um, we see that you would be deeply connected to this project. That's important to us. We're going to invite you to kind of dream and scheme together early on in the process, not show us what you're thinking and then we'll select out of, yeah, love that. Love that for you. Um, so your Google Doodle was depicting, um, Barbara May Cameron for what would have been her 69th birthday. Um, and I just... I don't know that I pay attention to Google Doodles every day, right? Like I'm not, I'm not just, it felt very serendipitous and important that I happened to pull up the Google page and saw that big pride flag, like yeah. the center of this piece. Um, we'll definitely have in the show notes um, links to the piece if folks missed mm-hmm. it. Um, but it was very promising. And I was like, I feel like I should know who this is. And as I like re-Googled um, <laughs> through Google, this, this uh, you know, this uh, activist, writer, photographer, badass, right? I was like, oh, for sure. I've heard of Barbara May Cameron, but didn't know a lot about her. And so this felt like a really prime opportunity to like revisit and realize, oh, this person was born in at Standing Rock in North Dakota, what is currently North Dakota, um, and just making all these connections as my brain likes to do. And I was like, this is actually so, so cool. Um yeah. You got selected, you got asked and invited with a very intentional lens of bringing in an Indigenous artist to work on this piece of about um, depicting the story of an Indigenous activist who's done some really rad work. Her history um, is really significant, and we can talk about that, of course, um, but she's not the only person um, in this image. And so I'm curious if we could talk about like who else, um, if there's folks by name, like what, who, what's all going on in this? Let's, let's talk it through. Yeah. So we, um, we went back and forth for a while. Me, the art director, the team, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, Barbara May Cameron's wife was also yeah. contributing feedback, which was amazing. Um, so we kind of landed on 
an homage to the two communities that she was really serving and really involved in and this kind of dual identity that a lot of queer POC folks have where you have like for her like San Francisco which is where she did a lot of her activism and then her indigenous community Um, and so the folks depicted are not any particular people like no one by name but um, we just kind of wanted to use smaller scale folks to represent uh, the different communities that she served and um, something that was really important to me uh, that I noticed is lacking in a lot of art um, I feel like something as small as like skin tone like I feel like some people tend to think that when you're drawing a group of people of color it's just brown darker brown lighter brown (laughs) without without understanding like undertone and like features like ethnic features and different like details like that that really matter and so especially when I was drawing um the indigenous side like the folks on that side of the drawing I was really thinking about um yeah like undertone and like nose shape and hair Mm -hmm. and included um someone who was older as well as like a couple and it was also important to me that like the two women on the indigenous side were a couple that they were embracing like that you know, that felt really important because I don't really see that kind of representation Mm -hmm. often of indigenous, like, queer women. Um, And then for the San Francisco side, um, I went through a ton of photos from the time period in the 70s, like, the outfits and the clothing. And so the people drawn are kind of loosely based off of images of, like, protests and parades from that time period. I love that. Okay, so they're kind of, like, it's kind of like um, Rose and Jack from the Titanic. They weren't necessarily like definitive, like actual, right. like, like non yeah. people, but they represent who would have been kind of key characters in Barbara's life um, based on her different geographical locations. Makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like I'm anticipating that the art director and the folks on the Google side of things kind of came with some information kind of ready to divulge or kind of talk through what types of like research or homework or additional kind of sleuthing did you do to kind of think through the imagery or kind of the story you wanted to share through this um, final version of the Google Doodle or all eight versions, really? Like what was the yeah. research process or kind of collecting process before approaching the piece? So to start, they didn't have, they kind of let me do my own research first. So I just read like different uh, articles about Barbara. I read about just like the timeline of her life, the things she accomplished. Um, And they also, uh, as we kind of went through the process, gave additional information as needed. I think the most difficult part while doing research is the fact that with the Google Doodles, there's certain images and specific places you can't depict because it's intellectual property. Like it's not uh, like the actual symbol from her like tribe's flag couldn't be depicted oh okay so working around that um any like specific um like patterning or beadwork from specific tribes also couldn't be depicted specific locations couldn't so it became this like puzzle (laughs) yeah like how do i indicate that this is san francisco and standing rock without it being based off a photo yeah without it using any landmarks like the Bay Bridge, not allowed. Um, And so it provided some very interesting creative constraints. Um, But working with the art director, who was super wonderful, really like good at like giving me feedback and like guidance, 
um, we kind of landed on taking elements from those locations to give the impression of where this was supposed to be, uh, understanding that, of course, it would be paired with an actual like l- timeline of what Barbara did. Mm-hmm. Like when you click on the doodle, it tells you where she did her work and the significance of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say doing the research, it was it was difficult to not depict anything thing specifically you know yeah it reminds me of what you said earlier of like being asked to be more abstract of like this is literally <laughs> adding to kind of like yeah it's a, yeah just kind of like unspecify things that's really interesting i wouldn't have thought that you yeah. could depict certain specific things like that so yeah like just and i think all of that depicts personally right i think that all depicts very cleanly in the piece and then it obviously helps to have some of the like so uh supplementary information kind of written out in the Q&A with you and the memo from the wife was really I think a particularly amazing you know addition I you know wasn't like I said I I knew of right I've written Mm -hmm. I've read her essay in this bridge called my back and I think that was the only like Mm -hmm. loose realization I had of her existence and hadn't you know taken my own time to do too much more uh research or findings about her but seeing that there was the message from her wife was really like really a gem so what was like corresponding or being kind of part of this little work group with her like like how did that um add uh to the experience so it was her feedback was kind of all filtered through the art director okay so um i would send in the sketch and then um, Barbara's wife and son and the Google team would all kind of chat about it and then uh, the art director would give me that information but um, it was really uh, I was so nervous when they sent the first draft to her (laughs) because I wanted to make sure that it was like doing justice to like Barbara's memory capturing her likeness in a way that felt true and um, I was so relieved when her wife's feedback was that it was perfect. Like she oh. loved the way that I had drawn Barbara and that was so special. Um, I also, she ended up giving feedback towards the end about the hat that Barbara's wearing in the doodle because okay. there was no photos of this hat, but it was like her favorite fedora that she would wear. Um, and so just having like a little bit of that personal information oh, to add to the drawing made it feel feel really cool. I love that. Yeah, I just I think that it just feels like it's even more well-rounded to have someone who is so close and so obviously very intimate with yeah. with this person um, to kind of bring bring that additional like less known uh, personality. I know reading the little blip um, message from from the wife uh, wanting to promote Barbara's playful side, I think, was yeah. was listed in there, and that maybe wasn't as like front facing um, in some of her organizing or like um, activism roles. And so I thought that was really cute. Did you have prior to being reached out to for this project like a general awareness of Barbara McCameron? Did you also kind of learn a whole whole lot, of, you know, through this project? How much did you know prior, and what are some cool things maybe you also learned through doing your research to prep for this? Yeah, so I had um, also read her essay in this bridge called My Back Mm. in College during one of my um, queer Chicano studies classes. Beautiful. Um, And so I I didn't make that connection until like deep into research. Um, So I was kind of starting this with a blank slate, but just like reading about all of the things she did, like it made me realize that I did not like in my queer history classes, 
indigenous activism was not something that was talked about. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even heard of the GAI or mm-hmm. yeah, GAI, mm-hmm. American Indians, um, until doing this research. Okay. And just realizing like how much she was doing even back then, it was really empowering. And it, you know, it also made me sad that these things aren't talked about more in uh, queer studies as a whole. I completely agree. I didn't read This Bridge Called Me Back until probably in the last five years at some point and picked it up. Like, really, the issue was I'd been trying to find a copy. And because it's been in circulation so long, finding like mm-hmm. it, I think there was a republish that I finally like saw. And I was like, well, that's affordable. Like I was getting yeah. these like original merchants. Um, mm-hmm. So I knew I'd been wanting to read it. Um, so I'm kind of in the same boat. And no, it's not really thrush in like our general conversation, which isn't surprising. Even the essay, which yeah. I think I'm going to probably um, pull some excerpts from for the intro for this episode, um, yeah. is is that she talks about kind of her experiences of feeling frustrated about her fear of white folks and even folks that she's well connected with or friends with her perspective being formed by, you know, growing up with her grandparents, um, you know, at Standing Rock and then, mm-hmm. le- you know, connecting with very violent white folks and experiencing racial violence, but not necessarily having the language for it right away. And then discovering that she's a lesbian. So like having all of these compounding pieces and then deciding she's going to do what a lot of Midwest folks do and hightail it out of your Midwest yeah. and go see what else is available to you out in the world. So you know, I think I, I literally reread the piece actually right before we got on because I didn't think I had my copy at home. And I was like, oh, my God, I do. I found it. Um, I thought it was in my office. Um, ironically, I almost lo- lost my copy forever because I lent it to a student and I have learned to stop oh, doing that. So I rebound it and so rereading it ahead of this and kind of thinking about what um, what was conveyed through some of the information connected to the Google Doodle online. You know, it just feels like her story is one that definitely needs to be more broadcasted. And I think it's unfortunate that, you know, she didn't necessarily live a long life. She died at the age of 47. Um, and anywhere that I've read says natural causes. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but 47 is unfor- it's just really not, you know, it's, it's a shorter life. And to know that there could have been more that she could have been capable of providing us and being a part of, you know, is a bummer. And is also, I think, something queer folks struggle with a lot is life expectancy and life possibility and what does that mean and how do we raise up and uplift the works of folks while they're here you know and here we are a few decades almost a little over two decades past you know her passing bringing her up again in this really significant way um was there any significance um or reason like that google chose kind of right now you know, May 2023 for her 69th birthday, or was it just kind of in the rotation and came together in an opportune way? Do you know? Um, I don't. I don't really. It's true. Yeah. I think um, I think initially this was planned for Pride Month, I think, okay. from kind of what I've gathered corresponding with the art director, because um, <clears throat> the deadline switched halfway through doing the project. Oh, okay. And it, sooner than expected. Um, and so I think maybe this was initially slated for Pride. And then upon realizing that her birthday was the end of May, it felt more fitting to just put it on that day. Gotcha. Um, and something else about the like the process of creating it that came up a lot 
Um, so folks pointed out that the flag is anachronistic, which is true, but Google specifically wanted the progress pride flag, which includes the black and brown stripe and the trans uh, flag stripes, mm-hmm. um, specifically because, you know, her wife, the team felt like that, you know, that would best reflect where her beliefs would be at had she stayed alive yeah. and like been aware, you know, and I think it was. It was a lot of mixed responses um, when the doodle came out, but something that a lot of folks were frustrated with is that the trans flag was included in this drawing. And it really? was very surprised. Yes. Why? Yeah. I, the day this went live, people are, right, I was, yes. Like I was getting hundreds of like great comments and then horrible comments. And it was, so, I mean, Google turned off the comment section on their oh, wow. Instagram, which they haven't done for like any post recently. And wow. it was it was strange because there was like run of the mill homophobia, which I expected. But yeah. then there were queer people who were upset that I had tried to speak for Barbara by putting this flag in the image and the frustrating thing for me is that, you know, I had collaborated with her family on this, the people who knew her best, who would know like how she would have felt about trans issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was something that like people kept calling it anachronistic, which is true. But the reason that it was included is because that's the most accurate, like up to date version of the flag to represent the breadth of the queer community. Right. Yeah. Wow, I would not have expected, as I'm sure you would not have, yeah. had, had not I wild. Oh my gosh, people are so exhausting. Uh, well, I'm glad you make that choice. I feel like the fe- I feel like that means like the the negative feedback means you made a proper choice, and like that was the direction that needed to happen. Is the sense I get from like again having read just a little bit of her work is that like she didn't necessarily take shit like she if i if i had to get yeah. like she was definitely probably like a pretty you know like opinionated like pretty stern and like bold person that's what i'm tracking just from like the way she speaks about racialized violence the way she speaks about queerness the way she speaks about like white gay people being an impediment to kind of this more intersectional expansive queer community um yeah that's so frustrating but also not surprising because yeah i think i just didn't i because like what i was saying earlier this this community because this was on tiktok and yeah um the community that i've kind of like put together is mostly queer people so i'm very used to like people just connecting to the work and it's great and then i move on but for some reason it didn't register that this was going to be seen by everybody because it's on google yeah so people who i typically don't you know pop up on their feed i was and it caused some like very like angry reactions and you know it was like like i said a split between really wonderful comments like people saying like I saw this at work this morning and cried like I'm so which was so wonderful um and my favorite comments were from teenagers who live in states where there's a lot of censorship happening uh telling me that the administrators at their school were furious that they couldn't take down anything because it's Google you can't take down Google oh my god yeah (laughs) it was awesome so it was worth it honestly (laughs) just 
so amazing. I would have thought about that. I love that. Yeah. Um, do you feel like Google, like the the folks who like partnered with you and like collaborated with you to do it, like kind of had your back in that way to like were aware and like at least I mean they turned off the comments, so at least they were aware and kind of like put a stopper on some of the stream of backlash that had started. So that feels at least like a gesture towards we're just gonna discontinue folks being able to dogpile. So that's at least a step. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like they maybe also didn't know how bad it would be. That's like, fair. Yeah. I, cause I've, yeah, I've been, I, I like looked through Google's Instagram to see previous pride drawings and nothing like this. Like there was maybe a few comments of people saying things that are homophobic, but specifically the inclusion of the trans flag, like that was the whole problem people had. Wow. And that, you know that issue hits close to home as a queer person but also someone with a trans girlfriend yeah and just seeing the hate that she's received online yeah um and i i just feel like with the way things are going like there's kind of a boiling point being hit with this conversation and people are especially angry even at the inclusion of trans people in mm-hmm. artwork in public spaces and just seeing that from other queer people I wasn't expecting so I imagine the people at Google probably didn't think this would be as much yeah. of an issue yeah um but yeah on Twitter on Instagram every platform they posted this was just a mess in the comments so so frustrating and again like you're saying though kind of like not super surprising like the the atmosphere we're in right now is very you know I'd be curious like time place manner let's say this was published in December or like mm. an arbitrary month that wasn't gearing up around Pride Month, right? Like, would it have been yeah. a little less? Would it have come out a bit more unscathed with a little less dogpile than when everybody was popping up their, you know, Pride mm. posts, you know, gearing up for June? I'd be really curious, right? Like, if it was just, oh my God, here's another, yeah, here was another mm. flag. Yep, I'd be very curious, but oh well. <laughs> just you know close google you can use app jeeves instead leave us alone right <laughs> um i'm curious for you kind of you know you learn besides learning some like factual pieces about you know barbara's work with you know starting gay american indians and um you know stuff that she had been a part of in california when she eventually moved there i think in her early 20s i think if i did the yeah. math right which is not my forte i'm not a math game but i'm pretty sure early 20s was when she departed she went to new mexico for school and then ended up in california is my understanding after a little geographical trajectory what um what else did you kind of gain or glean or any connections you've made um through this process of studying her depicting her working with her family like what what are you leaving out of this um project or like what what maybe has unearthed for you that is upcoming right like where where are you at right now after having completed this project I think it was really I I don't like while I was doing the project I was so focused on doing a good job and like going back and forth with Google so it was you know my artist brain was really in gear but after completing it seeing the impact kind of sitting with it I, I do feel like it was really um, like it was really wonderful to read about someone who was able to like 
bring in both of those identities and yeah. embrace that intersection. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, my family is uh, Chittimachin, but we don't have connections to like the language or the culture yeah. because, you know, like the the parts of my family that are Native American are also mostly French because okay. of colonization and like sure, the way sure. that, yeah. So it it made me a little sad just thinking about how she was able to hold on to those ties and bring that into her work and sometimes like as like a person of color who creates art in a public way I do ask myself like am I doing enough am I contributing in the ways that I want to and seeing the impact that simply depicting someone like this Mm -hmm. had and seeing the impact of you know having a diverse range of people drawn like even the characters beside Barbara like it it reminded me that that is important and I, I don't need to constantly have like a whole thesis on like queer theory and like, you know, the <laughs> intersection. Like I can just make art that's joyful and celebratory mm-hmm. and that's important. And I think especially now that's important. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really empowering to read about her and think about my own background and how I don't have to look at them as two separate halves of like, who I am. You have like a printed version of this um, somewhere in your home. Like the <laughs> I should have. Yeah. I really I should go on a on a snapback. I think that would be. <laughs> I don't know if you're a hassle. It's just it's just I don't know. It's just a genuinely like I don't want to say cute in like an infantilizing way. So please don't hear that. But just it like though. it's an endearing, wholesome piece, right? Yeah, you know, I think there's limited. Yeah. For a photographer, I feel like I'm curious, like, that there's kind of a limited, she didn't, she didn't take as many pictures of herself, I feel like. There's the kind of, uh, yeah. a, like, limited number of photos that I see looking at different articles that folks are depicting. So, like, there's only a couple, you know, depictions of her via photography. And I was like, we'll just use this Google Doodle for everything now. Like, just that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> With the flag, just to piss more people off. I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, what's on that? So, you know, you got over this. Um, arduous, really meaningful, significant Google Doodle project. What is like next for you? Like, what are you, you know, is there big, exciting projects on the horizon, stuff that you're working on, new stuff that you're trying out? Like, what's up with, with you now? So, yeah, I feel like this was definitely um, just like a big confidence boost just in Good. what I'm doing. Um, and it brought a lot of clarity. I feel like I... I work in a lot of different mediums. I am a makeup artist. I'm a painter. I do digital illustration, photo retouching, like kind of like have a lot of spinning plates. But this kind of reminded me that like at the end of the day, my absolute passion is illustrating. Mm-hmm. And I would say my goals going forward are to definitely publish a children's book at some point working yeah. with yeah like i would love to work with um or get signed to an illustration agency and specifically do like children's books because um i'm also an art teacher forgot to mention that one um (laughs) and i do like private one-on-one instruction with children and you know that experience has shown me like how important it is to have positive reinforcement and like validation from like an artist when you're a young artist and I think it would just be really cool to 
make kids content that's really thoughtful and high quality and represents a range of folks. So I think that's that's going to be my next move. I am obsessed. I love that. Um, not to like give away all your potential musings and thoughts so that no one steals it, but like, do you have like, a sliver of thought about like a a situation or a setting or like a character you're brewing on, or is that too far too far in the weeds for you to be on right now? <laughs> um, I think my ideal scenario would probably be working with a writer. I think that would be really cool because I do really love the process of like bringing words to life. Mm-hmm. Like I've done, um, I've done a lot of uh, editorial illustration for different magazines. I've done um, some stuff for books before, like one-offs, and I find that process to be really intuitive. So I think it'd be cool to work with someone whose writing lines up with what I'm looking for mm-hmm. and create illustrations for that story. Love that. Um, I just want to give room for you to, to share anything else. Um, any words of wisdom for other queer young artists? Because that sounds like a really important place for you. Any you know, any additional sentiments you want to add about the the doodle um, or things that you learned or connected um, about Barbara, Barbara May Cameron, anything you want to add, I think, because that was the list of questions I definitely had. And so I just want to give room for you to share whatever you want. Yeah, um, I think just in general, like my advice is that I think it's really important for queer people to have those like creative out- outlets, that space for play imagination because I feel like especially now like the world is really stressful and really cruel and you know simply going outside you're made to feel like you shouldn't be there and I think there's something really special and really important about having your like own world to like escape to whether that's writing or drawing or crafting or cooking like just some kind of creative space with no pressure where you can just exist I think that's really important. And within that, just finding other folks who make you feel safe enough to do that. Because the difference that I've observed in myself from, you know, being in that really unsafe environment in higher education versus now, where I am almost exclusively surrounded by other queer people, it really does make a difference. And I feel more clear headed as an artist, as a person. Um so yeah, I would just I would just recommend carving out that space for yourself, like as a queer person. Mm, love that. Thank you. Well, this has been splendid. I'm really appreciative that we were able to make this time. I just have so much appreciation for you in putting out this piece. It just again just serendipitously landed in front of me at a good time. And I'm glad we were able to kind of capture and go a bit more in depth about the process the research, the learning, the the love of doing, you know, a project that kind of connects personally to you in a variety of ways. Um, and I, you know, just really glad to be capturing a bit more story and uplifting Barbara May Cameron in a way that even for both of us, we were like, we knew, but we didn't really know um, as much as we could. And so hopefully this is, you know, an additional step towards uh, making sure that we're highlighting more than just the, you know, cishet, what, not cishet, but the cis white gays um, yeah. who tend to occupy so much of our queer history conversations that there's other people who have not gotten the same, you know, flowers or regard and have done really significant, meaningful work that has 
huge implications for things that are going on right now, right? People that have been saying for decades that things need to shift and change in our mainstream, you know, queer movement. So really glad to take um, this time to dig into that in ways that most of us, courtesy of our <laughs> education, yeah, <laughs> um, were not provided. So this has been so good. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. great. <laughs> Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>